0: Last time on Voices for Justice, we went over the actions taken by my father and Alyssa's friends in the first few months after her disappearance. We learned that my father took several trips to California to search for Alyssa, and that he sold his truck and purchased a nearly identical model quickly after her disappearance. In this episode, we will explore what happened between the years 2002 and 2006, including a lengthy call in which my father answers some pressing questions, the beginning of the police investigation what I was up to during this time, and the first major breakthrough in the case. We are at the year 2002. Although there is no documented progress in Alyssa's case until 2004, there are dozens of reports documenting items recovered from my father's home for this time period, mostly outlining his communications about Alyssa. He contacts the Phoenix Police, the DEA, the Governor's Office, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the Department of Labor, And countless other organizations. While there are definitely a ton of discrepancies and odd statements I will be discussing, at this point, his story about what happened to Alyssa was becoming more consistent. Alyssa was a drug user with ADD who could barely use a phone book, let alone buy a bus ticket to California. He stressed that she was running around with Paul Abbott, a tattooed and pierced guy from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers who just had to have given her the ride to California. From time to time, he throws in statements about Alyssa's boyfriend being abusive, but it seems that he was definitely much more focused on Paul Abbott and the union theory. Some of the odd statements and behaviors the police outlined in Alyssa's case file include stating that John McCain tried to physically attack him but was stopped by Secret Service, that Governor Jane Hole took a bribe to cover up the death of his sister Shirley who died of a ruptured appendix. He calls the DEA to tell them that his nephew is involved in illegal activities. He also tells that agent that he spent $37,000 searching for Alyssa. Around this time, he also introduces a theory that I've never heard him or the police talk about. He claims that he knows where Alyssa was for the week between her disappearance and the California phone call. He claims that she was at her friend Katie's house, but he couldn't get anyone to talk to him about it. And during one of the many phone calls he makes to Paul Abbott's employer, my father is quoted as saying, My daughter lied. And my daughter is not innocent on this, trust me. Now that she is missing, it makes me wonder. Nobody wants to say that their daughter is easy. But you know, all this has to be taken beside the point. There is a young person that is missing now. And he starts telling people that he's going to take me and move out of state. But then, in October of 2002, he actually buys the home directly across the street from the one we were living in. The house Alyssa was last seen in. And I don't mean across a large city street into another neighborhood or the next block over. I mean, you could literally look out the front door, throw a rock, and hit the house we were moving to. He also states that the FBI sides with his story about Paul Abbott, and goes on to state that the parents of missing child Elizabeth Smart hired her kidnapper and that the FBI won't investigate. And it appears that he began calling his mother in the middle of the night for up to six hours at a time to discuss his childhood. And he begs her to take part in a medical study, focusing on what he believed to be an incestual relationship between his mother and his brother James. He calls her so much that she writes his psychiatrist the following letter. I am writing this note to you because I am so upset over the letter I keep getting from my son, Michael, your patient. He says he has been approached by clinical medical psychiatrists to provide information about the unusual Oedipus-Rex complex scenario between my other son and me. If there is any such thing by any medical organization ongoing, I would more than gladly talk to them if it will help my son, without pay. That also goes for you, doctor. If by talking to me and it is allowed, I would more than gladly do so. The things that Mike is saying about me and the rest of his family are mainly figments of his imagination. He is talking to all my nieces, nephews, and grandchildren on these same subjects. His father and I will go through any testing if Mike will agree to help pay for it. This is not the first letter, and I won't mention the six-hour-long telephone calls at 12 or 1 or 2 a.m. Respectfully yours, Maudeen Turney. And in the year 2003, we encounter the first documented instance of my father undergoing any questioning about what happened to Alyssa. But it's not done by the police. It's actually done by my brother John's biological father. As a reminder, this is not Alyssa's biological father. Only John's. But from what I can gather from the police report and transcript of the call, John's father was living in California at the time and my father called him to ask about specific areas in which he believed Alyssa could be. But unlike a lot of other conversations we've gone over in other episodes, this is in no way a one-sided conversation. John's dad asks some really compelling questions and doesn't back down. The transcript reads, Hello?
1: Hello, is Mike in? This is he. Hey Mike, this is
0: Oh yeah, I I appreciate it. Anyway, I've got some information, and I don't know who to trust on this. In seeing how the information came through a person that I know, have known for years anyway, associated with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, I get a little paranoid. He's telling me he thinks he might have seen a girl that fits Alyssa's description. Somewhere in this, uh, what is called Cerritos?
1: That is nowhere by me. I'm not familiar with that area.
0: Oh, okay, cause John said you might know.
1: I know where Cerritos is, but it's up toward Orange County-ish area.
0: He said it was in Los Angeles, between Highway 91 and 605.
1: It is. I know what you were talking about.
0: Is that East L.A.?
1: No, it's Orange County. The surrounding areas around there are Long Beach would be. Uh, just to the south of it. To the north of it would be Bellflower, Lakewood.
0: Yeah, is that a decent area or pretty shambled up?
1: Cerritos is a real nice area.
0: Oh, is it? Maybe I have the name wrong.
1: No, for that area you were giving the right cross streets. That is a real nice area, Cerritos.
0: Well, if she's hanging around that area, it wouldn't be too bad, would it?
1: No, I think you are getting false information.
0: I wouldn't bet. You know what worries me most is anything to do with, you know, the, uh, the IBW. I never know if they're setting me up. In fact, they may be involved in this somehow, with that guy I've been running all over hell and back and, and today I had a long conversation with the City of Phoenix Police Department- And maybe, just maybe-
1: Why- why would Alyssa even come down this way? I think you need to look 500 feet from your house, not 500 miles. I mean, that doesn't even make sense.
0: No, she called from the- actually, it's Merino City. It's right there on the border of Riverside. That's where she called from.
1: But you were sure it was her that called you?
0: Oh yeah, I know her voice. She wasn't on very long, but that was Alyssa. I was really exhausted and tired and going out of my mind. No, it was her that called, and when I went ahead and finally got my phone records to make sure I wasn't going insane, it was a call from that area. It was the only call I got from that area. A real short call. So it was-
1: Huh. Marino Valley is a different kind of area.
0: Well, I've been over there three times, and went all the way into Torrance and Redondo Beach and all those areas, and gave them- You know, I sent Lynette a dozen of those flyers and asked her to give them to the police departments- And when I went over to Torrance, they didn't even have one up on the bulletin board because nobody had contacted them at all. You know, so I went around to all those, you know, there's there's so many little cities right there in that same area. I went to every one of those and gave them posters. I've been up close to, you know, I've been to San Bernardino down in Los Angeles. I'm exactly sure where I was at. But I told it last time I was there, you know, that I wasn't very far from East L.A., the bad area.
1: What would make you think she would even come here? People just don't come out here for no reason.
0: Well, first off, that guy Alyssa was extremely attracted to, I mean really attracted to guys with piercings and tattoos, and, and that's the guy I think gave her a ride to California. Because Alyssa, you know, all the kids, I've got six, okay? Each one of those kids, I would take them and teach them how to use a phone book, how to use bus services, how to read a schedule, all that kind of stuff. She is the only one that no matter how many times I showed her, she still couldn't do it. Alyssa couldn't even go to a phone book and order a pizza. It just didn't stick. She just really seriously had a, you know, a short-term memory. She had a real problem with anything involving steps. Extremely gullible. I mean, unbelievably easily talked into shit. She was just one of those kids. I don't know what the combination between Barbara and Steve was, but when Barbara and I was together, it was a 7-day, you know, 24-hour thing with Alyssa. I mean, it was just something that Barbara was always scared, you know, that Alyssa was going to walk off with a stranger. And we pulled her out of a car one time with a stranger that was telling her to play hide-and-seek with us. Shortly after I got her out, she took off. I mean, the guy took off. But we're just glad we got her back, because she was always getting pissed and running off. Doing things, you know, I was too hard on her.
1: Why hasn't everybody got a hold of her friends locally and talked to them?
0: Well, see, that's why everybody's come to the conclusion, if I'm not being lied to by Barbara's family. And, uh, Teresa's over in, uh, Silver City, New Mexico, and I've been there twice.
1: I would think she would keep in touch with her friends.
0: And that's why I asked John to get a hold of Lynette and tell them, damn it, this is serious. It's not a joke.
1: I can guarantee you that Alyssa is not with any of the family members.
0: You can guarantee that?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: You seen them all? Even back east? I'm pressuring a shit ton of people. This isn't a joke. I've gone, I mean, when Alyssa went missing, the first thing I did was make up posters.
1: But you didn't even contact any of her family members. That is the strange thing about it.
0: This is the reason I think the call she made one week after she left.
1: Mike, why don't you think legitly? I mean, like, reasonable people want to think something happened right there, right there where you are standing within a mile of where you can look out your window. What makes you think anybody is gonna, you know, I read stuff and what I learned and what I've seen and the people I associate. And when I hear about these kind of cases, it sounds bizarre for anybody to look anywhere else but in their own backyard. It sounds absolutely strange for anybody to go look for a kid in L.A. that lives in Phoenix. Something is wrong. I'm not saying that you are handling things wrong, but I wonder why you don't talk to people that are next door than people that a 100 miles away.
0: I've already done all of that. For the first week when she left, see, you have to understand that the only people that would let me put a poster up was Jack in the Box and Walmart. When I was putting up flyers on the street, a city cop stopped me and told me that I could be charged with littering. So that's beside the point. I got the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children involved in it. Because it's a runaway, Phoenix PD didn't do anything other than put her in NCIC and ACIC, which means if she used her social security number, it would have popped up somewhere. I went over and got her yearbooks, looked through them, got all the phone numbers, names, tracked them down, talked to them, you know? All the people at Jack in the Box she was working with found out some stuff I didn't know, you know? She was having this guy... She was saying that she wanted to work an extra hour, but then she was leaving the job and coming back before I came and picked her up. That's what her supervisor wrote.
1: Has anybody that you know personally talked to her in the last nine months?
0: Last nine months? Alyssa's been gone since 2001 in May.
1: But in the last year, anybody. That's why I don't think the girl's alive. She wouldn't call her own family, her own brother.
0: We have already come to that conclusion. That's what I told John. See, the biggest problem is that I've been doing all this alone. There was nobody helping me, okay? Everybody else was in shock, whatever you want to call it. Deferment, disbelief. She left a note. It wasn't even dated, but it was her handwriting.
1: You know I've heard about this, and I've talked about, you know, ask John about it.
0: Did you tell him she was probably dead? He didn't want to hear that. John doesn't want to hear that at all.
1: You know you have to look at the case. You have to look at the facts. And when you don't get a hold of somebody... If they leave for a day because they are mad at you, I can understand that. Two days, I would be extremely worried. A week, something is wrong. A year?
0: That's my exact sentiment. I backtrack to where she was for that week. I'm almost positive. But the people won't talk to me because they're afraid I'm going to sue them. But as far as the neighbors are concerned, Alyssa was seen in that neighborhood. They're almost positive.
1: You know, that is another thing, Mike. But I don't see what so scared they are of you. I mean, you can't sue anybody unless you have actually suffered some type of damages from you. I mean, Lynette feels the same way. And I go, I don't know what he has done to you to brainwash you like that. He is a normal person. What what are you acting like?
0: You see, I never, I filled out a lot of lawsuits, okay? But they were against the state for, you know, not properly doing their jobs. You know, like the EPA ignored all the contamination wells of Arizona because Arizona uses a lot of well water. About 75% of the people here use well water. Well, so I sued them to force them to basically do something about it, and of course I didn't win the lawsuit, but it did get national, federal EPA involved, you know, they they came in here and found out that there are some serious problems, and they've been working on it for almost 30 years now. Same way with the air and water. This valley is the desert. There's not much wind, not that much rain, you know, so all that shit's just killing everybody. But yeah, there's some lawsuits. I mean, last time I used a lawyer in my first wife's situation— Four and a half years and $16,000 later, it it wasn't over the kids. It was over bullshit. I told myself, no more of this crap, you know? Screw it. I'll do it myself. You know, but you know, there hasn't been that many. I've sued the government. I've sued other people. It's just, you know, they're always worried about this. Like, after Barbara died. Can you believe me that Barbara's mother said that she thought I'm the one that killed Barbara? Shit, she died from cancer.
1: But I think it is just crazy the way you are.
0: They were hurt. That's just just what it is. They were hurt.
1: That... That whole thing is there. It's so much innuendo and calling names and bullshit, I don't get into all that.
0: I don't either until they get started.
1: It doesn't make any sense to me. Guys going at it like that and working together on a project, I'm not that kind of person. I don't put up with that shit, and I mean somebody says, Hey, I need to help doing this and this. Either do it or don't do it, and you know, leave it at that.
0: Well, I was ignoring it until they called CPS and threatened to take away the kids, and I said, wait a minute, who are you going to put them with? Them? I don't think so. It was a shame to have to tear it down, to show the state agency that those people use a lot of drugs and alcohol, lots of abuses in their homes. But they are not going to take those kids, Barbara didn't want them to go with them. If she would have told them right then and there, signed the papers and sent them two girls and John with them, but she didn't do that, she didn't want to see them go with them. She told them that, so that's old garbage. I'm not concerned with that, you know. As far as all that, I've been all over the place, looking at the drug areas, the various places I thought Alyssa was, you know. But you can sit here and see that this is a true story. If you don't believe me, watch this one case developing here, this Elizabeth Smart. You're going to see some really contradictory things and some very unusual stuff.
1: But I mean, this is something where your daughter just turned up writing a note and disappearing off the face of the earth. Sounds pretty weird.
0: That's right, that's exactly what I've tried to convince them of. That's one reason why I heard the rumors, you know, from this guy in the company that was installing cables and telephone computer stuff at the high school. The guy with the piercings in his neck and tattoos and stuff all down, you know, hanging out of the the jack-in-the-box. He's one of those guys that Alyssa was leaving with, you know, now which I suppose he's married with a baby, you know. But when I got a hold of this guy, they were having a conversation. I was just trying to find out. I'm not expecting anything foul at the moment. I'm just asking, you know, trying to find out who in God's name gave her the ride to Los Angeles. Knowing Alyssa, you know, it's very doubtful that she could have even booked a bus over there.
1: But what is giving you anything about L.A.? What is even making you point this way?
0: Because if she made it that far and she didn't go to Lynette's and Torrance, she could have very well, you know, have gone to either. I'm just assuming the positive side of this thing. Because there's a lot of ways that kids can disappear. People don't realize they don't all just die. A kid can get hooked on drugs, wind up in a gang situation, they can wind up in prostitution, and they can also wind up in what's called, you know, commonly called in police work, white slavery, where they are actually sold to foreign countries. Did you know that?
1: Well, I find that hard to believe.
0: I don't. We got a conviction here, not even two years ago, right here in Phoenix. Same guy that I was involved in busting for running illegal aliens.
1: But that is getting like a little bit off. That is getting like way out. We need to take, you know, like 80% of the deals and see what really goes on.
0: The truth of it is...
1: I asked Lynette and she didn't have anything going with that kid. That kid didn't try to even ask anything of Lynette. There was no good relationship between Lynette and your daughter.
0: No, they didn't even know them. They didn't. But wherever she called from, that particular area, you have to understand, from my point of view, I've got nowhere else to go with this. And I spent a week, you know, roaming all over the place looking, and I know Phoenix real well. Going into some of the worst areas, some of the other areas looking, checking her friends out. John and Mike was going by that one girl Charity's house to see if, you know, she was around there, trying to find out where in God's name she had gone to. And I'm handing out flyers all over the place, walking, you know, because screw the cops, I still handed them out, even when I was, you know, checking out people.
1: What makes you stop from thinking something happened at your front door and you know the girl disappeared or something between her and somebody that was hanging around your house? I would seriously, I I think anybody that tries to go far from your house is out of it. I think you need to concentrate on that exact day, the two days before that happened and look within the first mile of your house. I really do. I think if anybody is telling you, they are psycho. It's there and that is the only place. You know, I hear about this stuff all over and it would be absolutely very less than that 1% that would end up long distance from you. The majority usually happens right there. Something happened. Somebody hurt her or somebody ran her over. Whatever it is,
0: she wouldn't have left a note.
1: That is what I mean. How do you know the note is legit?
0: Because I know her well. I compared it to her other writings, you know, and her handwriting to make sure it was hers.
1: And that she didn't write it under duress or somebody forced her to leave it?
0: But there was no signs of any. You know, Alyssa's room was usually messy, but it hadn't been that way for a while. She wasn't taking care of that ferret I let her by. She was upset, you know, most likely with me, because I was pressuring her really hard. Really on her case a lot, trying to keep things straight. Alyssa was really easily talked into all kinds of crap.
1: How about somebody that was hanging around with her every day? Somebody that was visiting her?
0: Oh, no. I went all over the school. In fact, her friends, you know, when I started calling them, I called some of them that had gone on vacation because I thought for a while maybe she went on vacation with one of these people. You know, God only knows. Some girls helped me hand out flyers, you know, because my family wouldn't do it. Sarah got a little involved, you know, but John and Mike never did. I was really disappointed in that because I love them a lot. But, you know, they just didn't get involved in handing out the flyers. You really have to walk door to door like I did this entire neighborhood.
1: And her boyfriend didn't disappear at the same time.
0: No, her boyfriend was still here. In fact, he helped me get some of the numbers together. He was completely shocked himself, yet he was a part of the problem. Because he and Alyssa were fighting a lot, you know? At school, he called her stupid in front of everybody. That's what her friends told me. Giving her a hard time because Alyssa, again, has that, you know, she can't remember things. And she was doing a lot of stupid stuff.
1: She wasn't mentally retarded or anything. She just had a problem, right?
0: Yeah, most people don't know about ADD. They think it's always, you know, the type of people...
1: I don't think it affects them that drastically. I've known people with it and...
0: Well, would you believe that a quarter of the studies... Because I did this for four or five years and fought the state over it and I won a lawsuit against the school district. Because they harassed us after trying to get Alyssa tested and placed. You know, 20% of them children who were true ADD cannot be helped by medication. And it really involves what's called a birth defect at birth. They are born with the front part of their brain not fully developed. What happens is they have short-term memory loss. They perform poorly on tests. They function normal. Alyssa was talented and gifted. She could draw, not as good as John. John is extremely gifted in drawing, but Alyssa could do the same thing. She had many talents beyond that, but she just, when it came to taking a test, you know, couldn't do math at all, never learned her multiplication tables, in spite of Barbara and I hiring a tutor. She just had a difficult time with anything that involved multiple steps in memory. She was quite a bit of trouble, especially schools over here with they ass backwards in Arizona. We're not much on helping the mentally ill or education over here. It's really extremely bad, so no, I all those things have been drastically done. Went all the way around, actually from a center circle as they call it, started working out. Looking for areas that I might assume, where I didn't assume, anything anybody told me, I immediately went out and checked out. I went without sleep for maybe, you know, maybe six or seven hours in a week. That's when the phone call came. I had just dozed off and maybe that's why I thought I was dreaming. But then my mind senses told me enough. I jumped out and ran over the road because I thought I could hear freeway noise. I thought she was maybe on the freeway right here next to us for some stupid reason. Probably because I was tired. By the time I got back, somebody else had called. I had that star 69 or whatever. It, it was last call return, you know, but it, it probably wouldn't have picked up because, you know, the number she called from was an area code 91916 or something, which was that riverside area. But I didn't know where she called from because the phone company wouldn't give me the number. I had to sue them to get the phone number. The police department, in spite of me telling them, look, this is an endangered child. National Center for Missing Exploited Children, you know, if you ever saw one. Her posters there basically classified her as an endangered runaway.
1: How were they able to pull up a number? That was not collect or anything. That was just a direct call, and usually phone booths are almost impossible to... No,
0: they're not. They've had the technology since I was a deputy sheriff. The point of it is that the phone company is charging $350 per 24-hour period per person, even to the police departments. Except in the particular case of the customer, if if you want to get the information, you're going to have to get a subpoena, whether you get it through the police or through a civil suit. So you have to get it and set it, and it took about six weeks by the time I almost got it. By the time I got the phone listing for the day she left, I checked to see who she called or, you know, or who called her. And there was nothing there. The date that she called back, about a week later, you know, checked those numbers out. The only odd number on there was the one in California. And believe it or not, they wouldn't even tell me where the location was. You know how I found out where it was at? I kept calling the number and somebody finally answered. It was a payphone at one of these convenience stores, you know, combination of Taco Bell or something and a sandwich place or whatever. It was a gas station. And as soon as I did, I rented a car, the kind that Alyssa liked, figuring that maybe she was going to be, you know, out hanging around that area. Because the people said that was an area where a lot of the kids hang out.
1: But did you talk to her long enough to confirm you're sure it was her?
0: Well, you know, it it had to be her. Because, you know, it, it wasn't a very long call. I just kept saying, Alyssa, is this you? And she finally said, yeah, it's me. And then she started rambling shit about how I fucked up her life, you know, and she couldn't stand the way she was being treated. I kept saying, Alyssa, is this you? Repeating it two or three times. I can't remember how many times I repeated it. And she said something like, I thought she said fuck off or something. I don't know if she was talking to me or somebody else, but then she just hung up. It was a real quick conversation. I was real tired. And again, like I said, I even doubted myself whether or not that was Alyssa. But once the phone numbers came in and I verified that it was one in that area, she almost literally vanished off the planet in my opinion.
1: What would make her want to take off from home?
0: Too much pressure. I watched her real close. I was on her all the time, watching Alyssa, and deservingly so. Every time I released her for a moment of freedom, hell, she would go off with one of her friends, you know? One of her friends, thank God, brought her home one time. She went over to another person's house. She was supposed to be going to the store and get a drink or something. Instead, they went by the other girl's house, and they went out back, and her dad had some beer sitting out on the back porch, so she just popped, you know, according to the other girl. Like the top off four cans. And Alyssa didn't know how to drink like a lot of ADD who died this way. She just guzzled four cans of hot beer and she passed out. Thank God the one girl had enough sense to roll her over before she threw up and drowned in her own vomit.
1: How old was she?
0: When she left? 17. She's going to be 19 April the 3rd. I'm hoping I get a miracle, like the smart situation. If Alyssa is still alive and, you know, basically got herself in a drug situation or a forceful relationship with someone. But the point of it being is that I've already gone the circle one time. I'm coming back on information a second or third time in some areas. Going back and talking to other people, going back and working this situation to see if somebody else saw this guy with the goddamn tattoos and piercings in the neck. Piercings in the neck is really rare. You might see it a lot in San Francisco or down in LA, but you don't see it much over here. When I called this guy's work that was hanging around, the woman knew, just by the description alone. She knew exactly who the guy was. And he's no longer there. Seems like he had a problem messing around on the job, you know, with these school jobs and they were doing other areas with the teenage girls. And there's a rumor, according to these people, that he had prior sex offense.
1: Well, how come the police don't pursue it?
0: There's a good, there's the question I've been asking and pressuring all over the place. I've been screaming and yelling. I went all the way up to the chief of police to try to get them to help me get this goddamn phone number because I told them, you know, look into this. You gotta see, you know, she left a note. Yes, that's true. But she is in trouble. I can tell you right now because by this time, this was the second or third day or something, fourth day, you know, since she was gone. She would have at least contacted her brother, John, because they were really close. And I'm hearing from the relatives that she's not calling, and they want me to get statements from these people. What proof do you have? This is what the city of Phoenix is telling me. Then they started whining to me when I went all the way up to the chief of police and it came back down the other direction. The sergeant that was over that quit now and gone into private business or something like that, you know? Like the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, because there's a lot of money in that, by the way. Walsh and his wife, who are splitting up in a divorce, you know, they've just given themselves a raise that is federally funded, by the way. They are making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year off that apiece. A lot of money in that business. And his Most Wanted program, and now I guess he's got a private talk show. But you know, they've done a lot. More than a lot of people did. At least they didn't bullshit around. But again, they were shocked. And they told me that if Alyssa calls again, to call them, they'll help me get the phone number so I don't have to wait six weeks. It's total political bullshit about paying that kind of price for something that I know about, you know, for a fact. And I've got a friend, you know, got out of the army together. Actually, we went in together and went out the same day, you know, that worked for Mountain Bell and these various companies involving that data they store. And yes, right now, especially with this new stuff going on, they can monitor almost every phone call in America with the carnivore and the Patriot 2 Act. Stuff is just unlimited. They are monitoring cell phones, email. I wouldn't do and joking around on an email computer if I was you. That's some serious shit.
1: I just don't really understand the situation. Like, this shouldn't have happened.
0: This is something that there's no one to blame for leaving home but me. I was hard on Alyssa, trying to get some sense into her. But she just kept forgetting. It's like you would tell her over and over, and she would come back when she made a mistake and she would say, I kind of screwed up, didn't I, Dad? I say, well, that's all right, honey. We'll get through it. And whatever happens here and there, she was a good-hearted person but really an airhead.
1: Nobody was hurting her over there. Being mean to her?
0: Nah, there was never any physical abuse, never any sexual abuse. Though Alyssa and them started screaming that, because when she saw that John started using that, and this is the frank truth, because Barbara's relatives, mainly Teresa, and them was talking John and, you know, making whatever he would say ten times worse, and calling Child Protective Services, saying that John was their source. When we got down to find out exactly what was going on, you know, what John was doing, they, they wanted those girls, and they thought they was doing that, you know, Teresa was over there in Illinois working for CPS. They thought that was going to take care of it. Unfortunately, the audio tape recovered by the police is stopped mid-sentence and ends here. But this is where the case records documenting the investigation into Alyssa's disappearance begin. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, Blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about quints, too, is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, and they only use premium fabrics and finishes, you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces, so recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash justice for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash justice to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. On January 6, 2004, Officer Mark Daly from the Phoenix Police Department reports that he receives information from the Doe Network that they have located a homicide victim in Sacramento, California. They believe it may be Alyssa. However, when he went to contact my father, he discovered that there was no current phone number on file for him. So Officer Daly sent a postcard and received a call back several days later. They discussed that the homicide victim had perfect teeth and a plastic sealant applied to them. My father states that Alyssa did not have a sealant applied or perfect teeth, but agrees to send the dental records. The records were not a match. And here is something in the timeline that really stood out to me. The police recovered a receipt from February 11, 2004 for a storage unit. This is a storage unit I didn't know about, and why this stands out to me is because at that time, our backyard had at least three large storage sheds. I literally called it Shed City. And none of the sheds were absolutely full, so why he needed this extra storage and what he put in there is a mystery. It's around this time that we meet Detective Aaron Murphy from the Phoenix Police Department the first detective I ever met on Alyssa's case. Although at this point, no one in the family was interviewed, they did ask me and my brother John to come down and submit DNA in order to cross-reference it with unidentified bodies matching Alyssa's description. And despite telling John's biological father that Alyssa's social security number was already in the National Crime Information Center, a nationwide database run by the FBI that would monitor the use of this number, On August 18, 2004, Detective Aaron Murphy adds Alyssa's social security number to the NCIC. In the report, she states, I have just received this from her father, Mike. And at this time, Murphy begins working some leads in the case presented by my father. He tells her that he saw Paul Abbott with two union members, Steve Spear and Gary Maynard. Officer Murphy asks how they are involved, and the report reads... He stated that he had been told by a Bob Whistler and a Jack Gibbs that Stephen was offering someone money or a job to get a photograph of one of Mike's daughters giving someone a blowjob. Mike stated that both Bob and Jack are deceased. And it appears that she also listened to my father's cries to investigate Paul Abbott, because on August 18, 2004, Detective Aaron Murphy states that Paul Abbott is named an investigative lead along with Steve Spear and Gary Maynard. And on August 19th, 2004, she interviews Paul Abbott. At first, he didn't remember Alyssa, but Murphy sparks his memory. And then Paul recalls the chatty girl at the drive-thru window at the Jack in the Box. He said that he remembers her telling him that she had some trouble at home and wanted to move to California with a friend. Paul then mentions that he was very transparent about this fact to our father who had spoke with him previously. Murphy then asks Paul if he's a part of the union, to which he replied, I'm not a union type of guy. He is then asked if he's familiar with the name Steve Spear or Gary Maynard. Paul says the names didn't ring a bell, but he gives Detective Murphy the contact information of a man who he previously worked with that might be able to help identify the men. Murphy then proceeds to call Paul's former employer to ask for the reason of his separation from the company, and the woman informs the detective that it was due to excessive tardiness. So Paul Abbott wasn't a member of the union and wasn't fired for hitting on young girls or messing around on the job like our father stated. And at this point, the police don't pursue this lead any further. At this time, I could have never imagined that our father could have harmed Alyssa, or even that she could actually be dead. But time was passing, and suspicions were growing. And I didn't know it at the time. But most of Alyssa's friends already considered our father a prime suspect. And understandably, none of her friends expressed these feelings to me at this time. Except one. Jessica. She was the first person to tell me that she believed our father killed Alyssa. I was at a record store with my friends, and I ran into her. Here's me and Jessica talking about that day. And when we were at that Zia, you came up to me and you said, You know your dad killed your sister, right? Like, I I don't, I mean, and it's possible that you were like, hi, hello, how are you? But that's what stuck in my mind. It's probably
2: likely that I was just like, hey, I know your dad fucking killed her.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Well, and fair enough. Like, thank you for doing me that kindness. And I I, I didn't remember what I said to you. I still don't remember, but you do. You remember me saying something back. You said it wasn't possible. Yeah,
2: which is how I felt, yeah. Yeah, and it was like... I don't know. I think that was the last time I saw you, even just around. But just the way you insisted that it wasn't possible because of the way he treated you was the complete opposite of her. And I was just like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> But I was just so angry about all of it. And you're just like, yeah, my dad... It's so nice. He lets me do whatever I want. He doesn't even make me go to school. He lets me smoke weed every day. Yeah. And then that just made me more angry because I'm like, what the fuck? He was so not that way to her. He was right. like creepy controlling.
0: Honestly, I was in no state of mind to hear Jessica at that time. But again, pretty much all of Alyssa's friends felt the same way Jessica did.
2: So I probably, yeah, I definitely carried on, and um, as time went on, and I never heard from her, like,
0: that's when I just really, really, like, it started to sink in, like, something happened that day. And did you immediately think it was him? Yeah. And I mean, so did you ever hear from my dad again after that? Nope. Never? Not once. That's crazy. Wouldn't you you think you'd check back in? You would check back in.
2: Probably a couple times a week. Like, if...
0: Well, he gave we me a We were really close.
2: Phone. Like, you know, we were really, really, really close. Yeah. And he had to have known that she snuck off to, like, see me, you know, once or twice. Like, he just had to have known. As, as, as much of an eye he keeps on her, he had to have known.
0: And being so paranoid. Yeah.
2: So then he would know that, you know, I better check in with Charity, you know, multiple times to see, you know, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? No. He just, he made his one phone call that helped him look like. You know, he was looking for Alyssa.
0: And in my mind, I feel like he was probably getting her before she got him. So, I mean, is that what you think happened to her? I mean, have you thought about it? You don't have to. Oh, I, without a doubt, Mike Turney killed your sister without a doubt. There's nobody else that could have done it. There's no way.
2: And he has the motive. He has the reason he there's, there's nobody else that you could point the finger at.
0: But again, I wasn't suspicious of my father. In fact, in the years following Alyssa's disappearance, everything changed without her around. And although my father and I grew apart in many ways, we also grew closer. I quickly became a caretaker for him, as the sickness he claimed to have pretty soon after Alyssa was gone never really went away. He spent years getting medical tests done, trying new medicines, and laying in bed watching movies. Thousands of movies and sometimes two at once. He had his bedroom set up in such a way that he had a television screen mounted on an arm on the wall right in front of his face, as well as another television on the side table next to him. He said he just couldn't get his brain off the bad thoughts. He would explain to me that no matter how hard I tried to make him better, it would never happen. He would never get better or be happy. But despite these warnings, I tried my best to care for him, I bought him books about things I thought would make him happy. I hunted down rare copies of old westerns for him to watch in bed, and I pretty much took over all the responsibilities of the home. By the age of 15, I had my first car so I could go grocery shopping, run errands, and take him to doctor's appointments. My father approached me and said that he had money saved from the settlement from when I was hit by a car as a toddler. An accident that he would later blame on the police, claiming that they told him, quote, We have complaints of kids playing in the street." We had to make an example. We chose you. So with my conspiracy car accident money, he gave me a choice. I could have the scars from the side view mirror of the car hitting my face removed, or I could have a car. And although I didn't get the 1965 rusted out Mustang or the 1980-something Crown Victoria I asked for, we settled on a sturdy 1984 Mercedes. And now feeling like a full-blown adult with my new car, I had more freedom than ever before. And with this freedom... Came a lot of trouble. My father has spoken out to the media and says I'm lying about being a bad kid. But for me, it's not about being a good kid or a bad kid. Most kids get in a little bit of trouble at some point. And although I feel so fortunate to have come out of my teenage years relatively unscathed by my actions, there is no way to avoid the fact that I was absolutely wild. But unlike Alyssa, I received no punishment from my father. And for a while, the less he cared, the more I acted out to get his attention. Honestly, I must have asked half a dozen of my friends to come on this podcast to talk about our teenage years. But my childhood best friend Renee was the only one that said yes. I only point this out because I think it further shows how innocent Alyssa's behavior was. Her friends were happy to come on and talk about her and their most wild times. But the kids I grew up with were different. And often, not even kids at all. It all started out so innocent. And although I never hurt anyone or committed any major crimes, I consider myself pretty lucky to be where I'm at now, considering all of the stupid things I did. My teenage years could be an entire discretionary tale in itself. So I'm just going to skim over the highlights to point out exactly how differently our father reacted to what Alyssa did and what I did. A few months after Alyssa was gone, I was arrested for shoplifting. I received no punishment from my father. By the age of 13, I had a 17-year-old boyfriend that I openly told him about. Said boyfriend and I would frequent a Motel 6 off the Interstate 17 where he sold drugs. I would stay with him for days, not even returning for school. By 14, I broke up with my boyfriend, and my friend Lacey moved in with me and my father. We were all at the store one day, and I turned to him jokingly and pointed at a mini-fridge and told him he should buy it for us and fill it with beer, and his response was to ask us which color we wanted and which beer. So we went home with my new white mini-fridge from my master bedroom and two cases of Smirnoff ice. On another occasion, Lacey and I came home intoxicated. My father was sitting in his recliner watching TV, and as soon as we entered the door, he turned to us and said, Do you guys really want to get fucked up? take these. And he handed us each our first Oxycontin. Lacey and I spent the rest of the night throwing up. While we have so much documentation of my father telling the police that one of the factors that made Alyssa, in his opinion, such a bad kid was the fact that she was caught with marijuana and she was caught drinking, it was to the point where Lacey and I openly smoked weed, drank, and did other drugs in the house. Not only were we not being punished for these actions. We could literally walk up to my father and ask him for money for weed, and he would give it to us. By the age of 15, I started dating a different boy, this time an 18-year-old drug dealer. But for whatever reason, my father actually cared a little bit more about this one. I had all but moved into his house, but no matter how much I tried to convince my father that my drug dealer boyfriend was the love of my life, he just wasn't having it. He even threw a punch at him at one point, warning him to stay away from me and it got so bad that my father had to call the police to get me out of his house. He told me I couldn't go to my boyfriend's house anymore, and as a child who never had any rules, I outright refused and told my father that I was running away to California, just like Alyssa. I then proceeded to drive myself to my boyfriend's house and hide my car in his backyard. But my father wasn't buying it. He, my brother Mike, and a few of his friends came over to my boyfriend's house along with the police. They didn't see my car, and my boyfriend and his father vouched for me that I wasn't there. But then, I looked out the window and the police saw me, so I went home. Correction, I raced home. I ran to my room where Lacey was waiting and understandably confused. I pushed my dresser in front of my bedroom door and went to bed while my brother Mike banged on my door and demanded I come out. But when I woke up the next day, I wasn't in trouble. In fact. My father and I didn't even talk about it, and I didn't stop seeing that boy. But one day, my father invited Lacey and my childhood best friend Renee to lunch, and I didn't know it until making this podcast, but apparently my father had quite the scheme to get me away from my boyfriend.
2: But I just, I remember this one time when you were dating your older boyfriend. Yeah, your dad took me out to eat and was like, we gotta break them up. And then he told us he had cancer. That my dad had cancer? He told us he had stomach cancer. And, like, he ordered himself rice. We had him take us to P.F. Chang's. He said we could pick wherever we wanted. He wanted to take us out to eat. We ordered whatever he wanted. And he ordered himself white rice. And then he sat there eating white rice. And he said, I can't have normal food because I have stomach cancer. So then that was all he said about it. But did he say, don't tell Sarah?
0: I think he did. Because that's mean, he happened.
2: Yeah, because what we would have said something. So he must have said,
0: don't tell Sarah. God. What, and you guys were like 15. No, we 16. We were young. We yeah. were babies.
2: And he then he said, we got to break up Sarah and her boyfriend. We had to figure out how to do it. What do you think if I hired a girl to, like, flirt with him, kiss him, and, like, I got pictures. I think he wanted us to, like, Say that we saw him, or like, oh my God. like wanted us to be in cahoots with
0: him. Why have we never talked about this?
2: I don't well because your dad asked us not to say anything, yeah. for, and we trusted him for some reason. I didn't want to betray that trust.
0: No, which know? I get, and it's fine. Yeah, and I mean, then it
2: was just kind of I like moved on, and then it's like this is just like something that has been filed away, yeah, forever. Oh, so yeah, that was one thing that like one hundred percent happened.
0: Wow. So I mean. It, Okay, but to be fair, he wasn't like that with all the other boyfriends, but this one particular one, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, it's, that's still, like, that's so crazy to me, to break us up. I mean, I think he was really afraid that he would have lost me forever.
2: Um, I mean, if we break that down and I'm not a teenager, your father took me to lunch to ask me if it would be, if I would help him hire a prostitute to hit on your boyfriend to get you guys to break up, and I was fifteen. And you know the fact that I that I both didn't tell you about that. How like how did to he... this day to literally right now, it's been over fifteen years. It's so, manipulation. Like, that's a really yeah, like so it's just very interesting how he was able to convince us to both keep that a secret. Dude, is he, he's so believable? Mm-hmm. He's really smart. He's a really smart person. He's a master manipulator. I will say that.
0: I reached out to that boyfriend, and although he didn't want to speak on the podcast, he let me know that that plan never happened. To be fair, although my father didn't try very hard to curb my behavior, and in reality, outright condoned it, there were a few times where my brothers tried to step in. At one point, my father asked my brother James to outright take me, but I refused, and on my 16th birthday, My brother Mike tried to step in and regulate with some rules, but by that point, it was really just too late. Here's me and Renee talking about that birthday. When you say that, what pops in my head is my 16th birthday. And Mike came over that (gasps) night to yell at my dad. Oh my god, and he
2: he, peed because we were smoking
0: pot and... Drinking. My Mm -hmm. 18-year-old, 19-year-old boyfriend was there. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, that guy. He hated me.
0: Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. We were doing other drugs. But, um, yeah, so Mike came over and was like – it was my sweet 16th birthday. Like, I think it was my literal birthday because it was – I mean, it was probably weekday because we were all fucking vagrants and, like, did whatever we wanted. Who cares if it's a weekday when we have school? Um, But he was pissed. He was pissed. He came over and started yelling at my dad about why is he letting me do A, B, and C and – Drink and smoke pot, and um they got in fight that night. And my dad I was remember. like, "My dad was like, I let her do this. Like this, this is a thing." I remember
2: that. <laughs> I totally remember that. And I think he even was like, "I'm going to call the cops." And I think he's. I think he went in your room and told you to give him your weed. I think you. I think he went yell you and said, "Give me your weed." And I probably said, "Hell no." And I think that I, from what I remember, I think he was trying to make you feel bad for putting your dad in that position. Yeah, like, he was like, you're going to smoke weed, you're going to disrespect dad like that. Oh, you're right. Yeah, and it was like, oh, it was, again, it, it was like, no, you're, you are misunderstanding what this situation is. Like, yeah. we're both cool. Everything's cool here.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, like, like, we're fine. We have an agreement. Yeah.
0: We have this, we have yeah. this agreement. It's been around mm-hmm. for a while there, buddy. By my 17th birthday, I broke up with that boyfriend and started dating my 8th grade sweetheart. Quickly, He began spending every night at my house, in my room, and in my bed. And it wasn't secret. Some days, my father would even cook us both breakfast. Eventually, my boyfriend just moved in, and my father said nothing about it. But no matter how much I tried to escape my reality through drugs, dating, and dangerous situations, I was always brought back to Alyssa. I rarely spoke about her, but I would write about her constantly about how mad I was that she was gone, about how I had been abandoned by everyone. And my father and I never discussed it. Her being gone was just another sad thing in our lives we didn't talk about, just like the death of my mother. There's really only one instance in which I remember talking about Alyssa and missing her openly, and I was belligerently drunk. I was with Renee and Lacey, and we were at our friend's apartment. We had finished a gallon of the cheapest vodka we could afford, and we followed it up with a gallon of whiskey. I had never been so sick or so sad in my life. I spent the entire night crying on the floor, throwing up, begging Renee to bring Alyssa to come help me, telling her that Alyssa would know what to do. And shortly afterwards, I took a few of each of my father's pills. I couldn't even tell you how many, but they barely fit in my hand. I crushed them up, put them in a Smirnoff ice, and drank it. And then proceeded to drink about ten more wine coolers before grabbing a shoebox, a picture of Alyssa, and some of her treasured items to conduct an impromptu memorial service for her in our backyard. It was in the middle of the night, and it was raining. I dug a hole, put the box in, covered it up with mud, and cried for about an hour before passing out on my floor, hoping I would never wake back up. And around this time, even Renee thought my behavior was too much to handle, and she began distancing herself from me. From 4th to 11th grade, my father would come in my bedroom each morning and ask me if I wanted to go to school that day. Most days I said no, and he'd call me out stating that I was sick or sad or whatever. Of the hundreds of days of school that I missed, I actually only ditched school one time. In my last semester of junior year, I missed 48 days. But I was never spoken to by a counselor or a concerned teacher, even after a pretty public outburst. I had gone to school quite visibly intoxicated, and about 20 minutes into my first class, I told my teacher that I needed to go to the nurse. I could barely walk, so she asked another student to escort me. I then proceeded to cry and hug said student, telling them that they should never do drugs and to not be like me, which is pretty much exactly what Alyssa had done to me the only time I saw her drunk. But I fell asleep in the nurse's office and was picked up promptly by my father. And no one said anything, not my teacher, not the nurse, and not my father. But despite missing so much school, the truth was, I loved learning. Even on days I missed, I would go back after school ended for extracurricular activities. I was in drama, newspaper, literary magazine, and academic decathlon. I had straight A's and a full scholarship to any state college of my choosing. And then on the second day of my senior year, my father came in my room like he did every morning. But this time, he said if I wasn't going to go to school, that I should just drop out. And so, I did. And about a month after dropping out of high school, I had my GED and was enrolled for the next semester at the local community college. Honestly, I can see why my father claims that I was a good kid. Because despite all the stupid things I did and how much school I missed, I managed to not destroy my life. But I can't help but think, what would Alyssa's punishment have been if she did the things I did? I was never made to sign a contract, our father didn't go around telling people how stupid I was, I mean, I wasn't even punished. But, that's how I dealt with Alyssa being gone, my ever-growing freedom, and my father's reaction to it all. Which, as you might have gathered, wasn't much of a reaction at all. With what I felt was my real life just ahead of me, and no one to rebel against but myself, I started to calm down and focus on the future. But then, something happened that no one could have predicted. On February 17, 2006, the Phoenix Police Department receives a call from a detective in Florida, stating that he received a letter from a man in prison confessing to Alyssa's murder. Next time on Voices for Justice.
1: And so he was very diligent and he and he let me know and Anderson let me know as well. I want this for your family. I want Alyssa's case to be solved. I want to know. And I want you to know. And I think they felt like they were getting close to something, you know, and when, when someone Street told me, he said we you know, we have or Anderson told me, he said we have all this circumstantial evidence and every bit of it wanks the mic.
0: Hey guys, I have to extend a huge thank you to Justin Rimmel for lending me his voice for all 10 pages of that phone transcript. Justin creates some really cool podcasts, including Anna, Public Enemy Number 1, Mysterious Circumstances, and he even creates a true crime podcast for kids by kids called Mysterious Circumstances Junior. So if you haven't already, definitely go check out his work. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.